The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org. Of course, none of us knows what happens after we die. David Eagleman, a neuroscientist, wrote a book that maybe some of you read years ago called Sum, S-U-M, 40 Tales from the Afterlives. Each of the short essays was one different imagining of the afterlife. There was one called Subjunctive, in which you meet all the other versions of yourself that could have been the ones who were a little less diligent, the ones who went to the gym every single day. And you can decide whether that might be heaven or hell or just interesting. And there's another in which everyone continues on, all of us continue on in another realm, laughing and talking in one big party, but we, of course, leave our bodies behind. And the body, he says, feels a bit, bit like a cast after the cast party, having just gone through this incredible dramatic bonding and then acknowledging, sadly, it's over. Eagleman writes, when you die, you're grieved by all the atoms of which you were composed. They hung together for years, whether in sheets of skin or communities of spleen, and when with your death, they do not die. Instead, they part ways, moving off their separate directions, mourning the loss of the special time they shared together, haunted by the feeling that they were once playing parts in something larger than themselves, something that had its own life, something they can hardly put their finger on. But also, another imagining begins with the naturalist version, all of us degrading back into life, sent out in oxygen molecules and beyond this universe, but then eventually missing each other and their connection and return every millennia or so to reconstitute you and then start to yearn for their freedom and break apart again. All these visions Personally, I find death completely incomprehensible. The most natural thing in the world, but also as incomprehensible as the other most natural thing, birth. Maybe more so, right? Because in death there is this whole entity with a history and a personality and emotions and secrets. An unfinished business sometimes and in he or she or they are there one moment, one breath, and then gone. And even though we know so much of them remains, an enormous amount vanishes in that moment. I am much more with Edna St. Vincent Millay in her dirge without music, if you know the poem where she writes, I am not resigned to the shutting away of loving hearts in the hard ground. So it is and so it will be, for so it has been time out of mind. With the lilies and laurels they go, but I am not resigned. 
Maybe all that lack of resignation is why this week my mother-in-law gone, Shirley Gibson gone, Ardeth Fortier gone, so many gone. Back in a building, back here in community, and so missing them, Bill Wise and Ruth Cowan and Ken Keep and Francis Lee, and so many who we lost while we were apart, and so the loss didn't really sink in. All these gorgeous life forces gone, I find myself deeply grieving and struggling to figure out a way to move through just the frustration of all this loss. And I'll tell you the one thing that has kept me going. <laughs> it's a photo that Courtney Young Law took at the family Halloween picnic last Sunday afternoon. It has me in my silly costume holding a baby who turned one this week, Sterling Hamner, who lost his grandmother before he was born, who came into this world in this wild last year, smiling at my masked face, the most beautiful baby smile you have seen. I've kept it on my desktop, on my computer, this gorgeous baby whose brother is also a wonderful life force, and all of the kids who were at this picnic with their thoughts and their jokes and their opinions and their observations and their costumes, all of reminding me, actually, of what has come into this world recently when so much I love has gone out. And not in some abstract way, these flesh and blood human beings to love. All of it epitomized this week in one bundle of scrumptious babydom that I can't wait for you to meet. <laughs> not because it's going to pry my fingers off of the losses I feel or force me to let go of who we have lost, but so that my heart can start to think of the ways to reach beyond grief just a little. When talking about Eagleman's book with some friends recently, one of them asked aloud, what do you say when someone asks you what you think happens after we die? And one of the people in the conversation said, I tell people I don't think we know, so think of what your fondest wish is of what happens after this life and believe it, because it might actually be true. And another said, I just say that the thing I hold on to is that a life may end, but the ripples don't. Indeed. UU Kenneth Collier perhaps put it best when he wrote, I do not know where we go when we die, and I do not know what the soul is or what death is, or when, or why. What I know is that the song once sung cannot be unsung, and the life once lived cannot be unlived, and the love once loved cannot be unloved. In other words, a life may end, but its ripples do not. This morning is proof enough of that. Life, a 
force unseen but felt and shared and wielded and passed along the lives we've said farewell to this year, these forces, these tsunamis of life and love and character gone in body. And we are not resigned to that. But still cascading across this earth's surfaces, carrying us with it ripples beyond our vision. For all those we love, and we have called into this space today, let us say once again, presente, siempre, fuerzas de amor. Grief. The reality is there will be grief. And you do not know how that will manifest inside of you or what it will look like for others. It isn't something you can prepare for. You will only come to know it as it shows up and it will be different for everyone. Be gentle with yourself and one another. I found myself speaking these words to Alex Starr when he called to tell me that Ian, his brother-in-law, the husband of his sister Karen, and father of Jude was killed when he was hit by a vehicle riding his bike on a cross-country venture. When Alex first texted me that morning after receiving the news, he texted, I just needed to tell someone. Though I did not know Ian, I know Alex and I knew what Alex was telling me. Death had just arrived at his door, at his family's door, unannounced. And how does one open to take it in? Though I have experienced many people close to me die, including grandparents and aunts and uncles, who I loved dearly. It wasn't until my own father died that I became intimately familiar with grief. A presence that took up occupancy within me and slowly seeped into most every cell of my body and mind, dimming the lights of my familiar life force as it moved through me. I really wasn't aware of how pervasive my grief was until its density began to dissipate like the lifting of a thick fog. And I slowly felt an aliveness again. It stayed with me for about six months 
and I don't remember welcoming it in, and I don't remember telling it that it was time to go. These past weeks I've been thinking a lot about death and what it means to remember and honor those who have died. Not only because Alex had called me about Ian's death, but also because we are preparing the annual service for those who have died homeless on the streets of San Francisco and in the residential hotels. Then this week, Sam and I awoke to an early morning heart-wrenching text letting us know that our dear friend Brian Edwards had died the evening before. News of someone dying is often difficult to receive, but the sudden death of someone we just spent time with or received a text from hits you in the gut in the way that your own breath stops for a moment. Only when we start breathing again can we slowly take it in, despite the resistance to do so. How can it be? At the Fool's Court on Hyde Street, we made the street-level lobby into a space of remembrance for Day of the Dead, for All Souls Day. I awoke early on November 2nd and spent more than an hour quietly lighting candles and adding pictures to the window facing the street and placing some on the table inside. I felt the warmth of something familiar, remembering a multitude of moments in my life when I would go into a quiet church and light candles in front of statues of saints or on these big racks that had dozens of candles. I'd light candles in memory of people who had died, sometimes with a, a petition asking them to be with me, to give me the strength I needed to get through a moment, at times asking for a clarity of action Sometimes the candle was pure thanksgiving for them and for their life. It never ceases to amaze me how the little flicker of a flame can bring forth such immense warmth and presence. A communication of sorts, reaching souls that I can no longer write to or call or sit with, that flame is like a direct line, a connection. Hello, Dad. I sure miss you. Okay, how I wish I could hear your voice. Good morning, everyone. I just want you to know how grateful I am for you and your palpable presence that remains with us. I long to see people who have gone before me 
and still I feel them near as I talk to them. I relate to them, not as ones whose lights have gone out, but rather as ones who have passed to a place of eternal light. I light candles before the pictures of people I love, not only on the day of the dead, but many, many mornings throughout the year as I awake and begin my day. It is an act of giving and of receiving, of remembering and being remembered. And for all who have died in this past year, in this community, in our circles of family and friends, for Ian and Brian, Ardeth, Liz, Shirley, and all the cloud of witnesses we remember today and every day, I share this prayer we use in our Catholic ritual. Eternal rest, Grant unto them, O Lord, and let perpetual light shine upon them. May they rest in peace. Amen. Mm-hmm.